The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabah. This week, we're passing the baton to our colleagues in Asia who will be discussing a pivotal event in China, the leadership shuffle at the 19th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. Today on our show, we have Christopher Bador, uh, our recently joined China columnist. Um, he's speaking to me from Washington, D.C. I'm in Hong Kong right now. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm the Asia editor here. So welcome on the, on the show, Chris. I believe this is your, your first. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, look, um, so you're perfectly positioned there in D.C. Uh, to kind of talk a little bit about how this looks um, from there. But um, what everybody has their eyes on around the world right now, at least everybody who's watching China, is this upcoming 19th Party Congress. And for listeners who are not intimately familiar with this, this is a five-year event. Um, it is a political event primarily um, during which the uh, the top leadership um, will will reshuffle itself. Um, it's a scheduled thing. Um, and ordinarily, the, the Politburo Standing Committee, um, which is the most important uh, political body in the country, along with a lot of people in subsidiary bureaucracies and ministries, will will turn over and, and new faces will appear. Um, this is a particularly critical one. Um, it's coming, you know, as President Xi Jinping, you know, appears to be, and is, at least is being ranked by outside observers, as already one of the most powerful Chinese presidents um, of recent memory, um, certainly more powerful than his predecessor, Hu Jintao, possibly, you know, as powerful as, you know, the, the, the big names Deng Xiaoping and Mao Zedong from decades ago. Um, and a lot of observers are seeing this Congress as, as being a platform in which Xi Jinping will take even more power, even more control, put more people into place, um, potentially make all sorts of changes. Um, some heads have already, I won't say rolled, but some people have already stepped down. The finance minister, Lo Jiwei, has stepped down. Um, you know, the, the insurance regulator um, <laughs> has stepped aside under, under disciplinary problems. Anyways, and it's, it's looking like a really unprecedented time. So I'm going to ask you, Chris, uh, what is your take first on kind of what she is going to do here? What's most likely and what are going to be the, the, the key things you're watching for? Yeah, so I think that what you said is absolutely right, that she is very strong. He's perhaps one of the strongest leaders that we've seen in decades. And really what the Party Congress is going to do is it's going to show us exactly how powerful he is as he stacks up compared to his predecessors um, when they had their mid-year, mid-term um, leadership reshuffle. So I think that the number one thing that everyone is going to be looking for among the China analyst community is does Wang Qishan stay on? Uh, Wang Qishan is the anti-corruption czar. He's a very popular figure among party elites, among the Hoi Polloi. Um, but most importantly, he should step down and should should kind of be used in, in air quotes. Um, that's if you believe that Chinese leaders are going to respect the age limit, um, which is called seven up, eight down. As for the Politburo, if you're 67 or younger at the time of the party congress, you are eligible to stay on or to be promoted. If you're 68 or older, you are not. You must step down. And Wang is now 69. 
Um, so the idea being that the idea of, of why everyone is, is so interested in Wong is if she himself wants to break the age limit in 2022, one of the things he could do is use Wong as a stalking horse this time around to say, look, Wong needs to stay on to either complete his anti-corruption duties or to steer the economy. So what we need to do is we need to break the age limit just this one time or just break it completely in order to keep Wong on. And then that would pave the way for Xi to stay on for possibly longer than his second term is completed in 2022. Now, there's already some people in government who are past the age limit. I mean, Zhou Xiaochuan, who's the central banker, you know, is still in place. And, uh, yep. you know, that you know, there's there's noises being made. I mean, I, I expect him to step down either this year or, or early next. Um you know, so so obviously there's a way to do it. I mean, I guess the question for a lot of people is, is why does she need even more powerful if he's already, you know, seen as this kind of extremely strong Chinese leader? You know, he's he's pushed, been extremely aggressive with territorial claims. You know, he has without really making massive compromises on trade or, you know, opening to foreign competition like that hasn't really gone anywhere. Why does he need more? What's what's the problem that, you know, the country has that having an even stronger leader would address? Well, I think that there's two key things here. One that one factor that the investment community is really thinking about, including businesses in China, and another factor that I think she himself is probably concerned about. So the concern among invest, the investor community, the business community, um, both inside and outside China, is there's this theory going around that the biggest obstacle to China's reforms are these quote-unquote vested interests, and that if she could just spend his first term accumulating power, installing his loyal lieutenants in key positions, especially in the economic ministries, that paves the way for in his second term he can implement very ambitious reforms and you don't get folks in the bureaucracy and the state-owned enterprises and other parts of the economy that are able to subvert or roll back his uh, the reforms that he wants to from the center, um, which was always the issue that kind of bedeviled his predecessor, Hu Jintao, um, whenever he tried to implement reforms. So that's one reason that people in financial circles or in the business community will give you as far as why she needs more power. That's kind of fallen out of favor lately. I think that the more popular theory now is that she himself, and this is the second reason, that she himself believes that in order to maintain Chinese Communist Party control, um, essentially regime survival, that the party needs a disciplined leader who's going to inject um, clear hierarchical power within the party um, and who's going to steer them away from kind of the softness of what they saw in the Gorbachev years in the USSR where, you know, you had Glasnost and Perestroika and then the next thing you know, the USSR is overthrown. He keeps coming back to that in the speeches, the example of the USSR and his advisors keep coming back to that. They need to prevent that in their view. Um, and so they need she to have more power. Well, I mean, but OK, for one thing, I mean, I, I personally hoped that view was correct five years ago because she, you know, appeared to kind of come from nowhere. This was not like some sort of major personality. Um, he looked, you know, when he first took power as the tool of a faction. And, you know, there was this kind of consensus that, you know, China needs more reform. State-owned enterprise reform is key. These guys are these huge wasters of capital. You know, they're polluters. They're answerable to nobody, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, and basically what, what, what this guy is being put into power to do is, is push these changes through. But five years later, 
you know, if anything, he's strengthened the state sector. I mean, we've got these new policies of, you know, the, you know, this, the state is the strengthening party community committees inside the private, you know, private sector companies. Um, there's this idea that they're going to take 1% of the BAT companies or some of well, not the BATs, but some of them like Tencent, Weibo, uh, Tudo Yoku, which I think is owned by Alibaba now, and they're going to get a board seat there. You know, so now this guy isn't looking like a reform candidate at all. He has pushed the anti-corruption campaign through Wang Qishan, you know, which I think everybody sort of supported, except it was kind of conducted in this opaque way. And a lot of Chinese people you talk to are like, oh, that was just a factional struggle. That's not like actually upgrading party governance or whatever. That was just him getting his people out of the way. But I mean, most worrisome, I think, for, for a lot of China watchers, myself included, is that, you know, it's one thing to be protecting the party's supremacy by cleaning the party up. I don't think anybody, you know, would be against making a political party a more responsive, honest, transparent institution. But I mean, the worry, I think, is that he's going to sweep away this kind of consensus restrictions, these these checks and balances on the executive that existed ever since Mao Zedong did so much damage. You know, and Mao, if anything, almost destroyed the party, in fact, kind of provoked a next best thing to a civil war. Um, you know, by kind of taking all these power to himself, um, sidelining this this Politburo Standing Committee and concentrating power in these cultural revolution committees and stuff like that. I mean, millions of people died. Uh, it was a disaster, you know. So now we have Xi kind of stepping into this even stronger thing where, I mean, it seems to me like this is a risk to the party if he goes too far. Do you think that's the risk here is what's happening or is, is he going to be more conservative? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. Um, look, the the hope or concern or however you want to label it um, of this this idea that oh, you need she to uh, have a lot of power in order to break through the vested interests. Um, you know, I think that's fallen out of favor over the past say two years, um, and justifiably so because as you note, it just doesn't seem like she himself has a pro-market inclination in a lot of areas of the economy, the state-owned sector and tech, of course, being first and foremost, but also a lot of other areas, to be frank. Um, and I think that, you know, my own personal view is, look, you look around the world, and uh, obviously you have regimes of all different shapes and sizes. Um, just as a general stylized fact, the fewer people there are calling the shots at the top, the worse quality of governance you get. Again, just in general, there's always, you know, your Pinochet exceptions. Um, but, you know, is it, was it, there's a good chance we could look back and say during the Hu Jintao and the, um, and the Jiang Zemin years, uh, his two predecessors, um, that actually they weren't so bad after all, that you had this modicum of competition at the top, but that meant that, um, they were decentralizing power to a lot of the ministries, to a lot of the local governments, which were in turn relatively pro-business. Um, and there was certainly absolutely corruption. There was absolutely rent-seeking in a lot of areas. Um, but it was also a period in which business had a lot of input over policy, um, in part because of what you might now call corruption. Um, again, I mean, it's a Leninist system. That's how you... 
that's how you lobby to a certain extent. Um, you might want to take out your local provincial party boss to a nice dinner in order to explain why this regulation that's coming down the line um, will severely impact your business. And maybe he changes the policy, maybe he doesn't. Um, but it's a way for you to get your voice heard. And um, so that was, you know, just the whole idea, basically, in summation, this whole idea that. Um, it was a very bottom-up system, and local-level officials are a big reason why China could maintain um, high rates of growth and instill confidence in entrepreneurs and in investors. Um, and now you see that kind of slow, slowly eroding under the centralization of power under Xi Jinping. So it's an open question. I mean, who knows? Uh, yeah. Well, do you think he's over? I mean, because just the, the counterpoint is that, like, no, I mean, I, I, I get that. It's just but I mean, if you look at like the raw numbers, I mean, the economy is is rocking right now. I mean, you had this. I mean, it, it might not be causal, but I mean, like, you had the anti-corruption campaign. You had you know some ugly, ugly economic data caused in part by the downturn in global commodities prices, which was sort of out of China's control. Um, you know, they they made a few policy mistakes of their own. But I mean, right now, she coming into this event you know, has just presided over a big run up in stock markets. You know, the currency is quite strong against the dollar again. Um, you know, capital is no longer fleeing China in any meaningful sense. Um, you know, everything on paper looks looks pretty good. I mean, is that what's the chance that he's got kind of like an artificially rosy sense of the economy or alternatively, like is is this kind of ugly, non-standard, non-liberal way of doing things actually working? I mean, it's to be determined, right? Because uh, everything looks rosy, but they still have the debt issue to very much address. Um, it's not clear how much of this is just a manufacturing rebound. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say, because if you would have asked me, if you would have asked pretty much anyone um, who is a China forecaster earlier in the year or late last year, the consensus was always, okay, we're in, we're in a strong period right now, but it's going to slow down uh, later on in the year. And then what you found in the first quarter and then the second quarter and then the third quarter most recently um, is you get fairly strong growth. And I, I expect that we'll see strong growth numbers when they come out this week for the, you know, the third quarter. Um, and so the kind of economic, the median forecast just keep getting pushed back of, oh, yeah, this was unusually strong this quarter, but it's, it's definitely going to slow down then. Um, so, I mean, what does it add up to? Like, you know, you, exactly as you say, he's been quite successful at managing the economy so far, with one exception. And this is what I would point to. Um, the mid-2015 to uh, first quarter of 2016, the soft growth that we saw, which was, you know, when it came, how did she respond to it? Did he respond to it any differently than his predecessors did? I would say no. I think that they just rolled out a stimulus. They knew debt was an issue even before then. They rolled out a stimulus. They knew it was going to make it worse, and it did make it worse. And now they have, you know, finally some breathing room, and so they're making the right noises about deleveraging. But it's still an open question. Um, it's just still an open question about how different he is from his predecessors and whether he sees that the growth model needs to change and, um, and is taking vigorous action to, to forestall that, uh, the ending of this growth model. I mean, yeah, and I don't think, you know, based on what he said and what the government is doing, that, that they do perceive the need for radical reform. I mean, what, what we have seen has been this kind of increasing intervention overseas I mean, you know, the renminbi stabilized, but part of that was due to the central bank going and throwing its weight around in offshore derivatives markets. 
Um, I mean, the response to the the stock market crash of 2015 was extremely frightening for people who were on the receiving end of that. And now we've got you know all this this export led growth again, which is good. I mean, investment driven growth. A lot of this is external forces. I mean, like external demand has been solid, has even recovered. Um, you know, so China's export sector, which is not like a big engine of economic growth, but is still a huge provider of jobs and a big part of the private sector dynamism, is certainly you know helps to have that going well. But I mean, like you know, the the this investment. I mean, China's consumption share of economy is still you know really low um, compared to other kind of thirty seven percent something. Um, quite low. So yeah, I'm worried that this old model is kind of getting more credit than it should. And it also seems that, you know, while the China bears have been scared off, I mean, I don't think anybody's like, everybody's done shorting the yen. Um, Maybe people are going to go long stocks and bonds thanks to these kind of like pilot openings. But I mean, the China threat people have certainly been strengthened that like, you know, the Steve Bannons of the world who are out there being like, well, you know, this is a aggressive, you know, economically nationalist model that, you know, is kind of mercantilist and, and wants to seeks to build exports and block foreign imports and, you know, indigenize everything, you know, not only is that, you know, dangerous to our interests, but it's also what we should be doing too, <laughs> you know, and the risk is that like everybody imitates this model, um, you know, and, and, and yeah. it's, it's just ironic to me that the big centerpiece of this is like the one belt, one road or belt and road initiative, whatever they're calling it today uh you know is being pushed is like let's integrate you know with the rest of the world but at the same time she is like closing down the doors shutting down vpns shutting down the internet shutting down political dissents you know bringing the cultural industry movies and music back under tighter control like in every other way apart from like the pavement and the railways it seems like this country is sealing itself off and it's part of a wider trend um which seems to me quite quite dangerous but um you know, I don't know. Maybe we're overreacting. I mean, so, some of you said you, you've written that, you know, it could be that this guy is more of a actually, you know, going to be more inclined to go to orthodoxy and we might see signs of restraint. I mean, how likely do you think that's going to be at, at this Congress? It's it's so hard to say with the party congresses. I mean, just historically, everyone. Well, what would it look it? like? I mean, if he's restrained, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. we've got this. Would he say, like, don't put Xi Jinping thought in there or like what would be the signs of like she's kind of stopping short of becoming, you know, a, a, a Mao or whatever? Yeah, I think I would note um, three different things. So signs of restraint. First is that he didn't violate the age limit. So Wang Shishan is gone. And there's no one that's over right. 68 um, in the Politburo, Politburo standing 68. So that's number okay, one. <laughs> um, number two is that he doesn't amend the party constitution to include Xi Jinping thought. He just includes, there's kind of this this stock language, this very formulaic um very formulaic sentences that they include in. And there is a, a clear pattern that he can follow if he wants to follow his two predecessors um, and the subtext of how they kind of formulated it without going into too much detail is essentially that they emphasize the collective nature of the party rather than the individual. Um, and the third thing I would point to is is his title, which has recently cropped up uh, in some Chinese circles. Uh, and by recently, I mean over the past week in particular, of um, his title, uh, namely of General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, that it might revert back to Chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, which would have a lot of political overtones. So if he does not do that, that would be also, I think, a sign of restraint. So that's what I'm looking for. As, as far as does she 
still want to move toward a more institutionalized party mechanism and more institutionalized um, succession and transfer of power. Well, we will certainly see. Um, so the party congress is going to be on the 18th. We will be well. It's going to start on the on the 19th, I believe, um, and then it'll run for several. Well, it'll run into the into the following week. At a certain point, we'll have answers, hopefully, to most of these questions. That's our show for this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Pete Sweeney and Chris Bedore. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.